What if I told you that you could help solve the hospitality recruitment crisis with just £10? You'd say, shut up, take my money, wouldn't you? Well, that's exactly what a new initiative called Hospitality Rising is going to do. Between now and May the 12th, we are raising £5 million to fund the biggest hospitality recruitment advertising campaign that the UK and beyond has ever seen. We want to double the amount of people who would consider working in hospitality. Think army, be the best, but for hospitality. All we need from you is £10 per employee that you have in your business and together we can stop this recruitment crisis forever. Go to hospitalityrising.org now to find out how you can help today and don't forget to tell your HR team and your CEO. Supersonic! 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 Supersonic. Supersonic. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The rocket fuel podcast for food, drink and hospitality businesses everywhere. Listen up, tell all your friends and share with your colleagues. Every single episode is packed full of tips, tricks and advice on how you can make your brand boom. Hello, it's Adam here from Storekit. We're the easy mobile ordering system for ambitious operators. We love Mark so much that for podcast listeners, we've got a very special deal. If you head to storekit.com forward slash demo and quote supersonic in the form, you can get £50 donated to a hospitality charity of your choice. All you need to do is complete the demo and be a real business. So if you're experiencing trouble finding staff, if you want to boost premium orders, or if you just want to manage an outdoor area with the easiest possible system you can find, head to Storkit right now and check it out. A creative agency for the hospitality sector, Saved by Robots create compelling brands and memorable experiences through great design and engaging storytelling. From Scottish Restaurant of the Year Sugar Boat to Tip Jar, the digital tipping platform that's taken over the world, Saved by Robots excel at bringing ideas to life. As well as developing new concepts and refreshing existing brands, the robots provide outsourced graphic design to help multi-site operators grow with confidence. Check out their work and get in touch at savedbyrobots.com. So we're still in the depths of January and I'm so excited about the next guest. His name is Jamie Barber. You may be familiar with him. To me, he's restaurant royalty, but to him, he's an accidental restaurateur. Jamie has had no less than 28 startups, if you count everything that he's done. Brands that you all know and love, from Volandri, Saki no Hana, to Kitchen Italia, and also Cabana, Hush, and now My Supper Hero. Jamie has started My Supper Hero with an amazing co-founder, Mylene Class, from pop fame and celebrity fame, and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here fame too in the jungle, and it really seems to be a business marriage made in heaven. They both stumbled upon the same problem having chats at the school gates, waiting for their kids, and the problem seemed to be that they were delivered out, they were also sick and tired of cooking, but they were also starting to find that even the meal kits and the finish at home kits weren't scratching the itch that they had. That itch was to spend around 10 minutes finishing dinner and getting it all ready for the family, and then also making sure you had something scrumptious and nutritious. 
I really think this is a category killer of an idea, mysuperhero.com, but make sure that you listen to this episode. There's so much great advice about starting restaurants, running restaurants, and starting e-commerce startups. So it gives me the most superhero and superhero pleasure ever to introduce one of, uh, actually a long-time friend and a friend of the show. It is the incredible Mr. Jamie Barber. Hello, welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> good, good. We've just been discussing the troubles of grey hair and online dating before uh, before we go on the episode, but uh, it's online dating for me, not for Jamie, I should add, by the way. I'm just out, very happy marriage, in case anybody is looking in. With <laughs> so there we go, there we go. Um, so where in the world are you today, Jamie? Uh, I'm in North London. Ah. Uh-huh. Hi, London, yeah. Very good, very nice, good. And um, your wee sister's doing okay? She's doing great, she's been in Thailand and she's back today, I haven't seen her yet, but great. she's back on the overnight flight and I think back straight into the office. Yeah, nice. Well, I think I, Lizzie sent me some uh, New York hotel tips over Twitter um, when she was maybe bored at the airport or something like that, you know. So, okay, well, man, we've got a lot to cover. And also some things to clear up as well, because I think I've thought certain things about your past and I've maybe got it wrong. And then when I was researching, I found out I've got it wrong. So we better just get it from the, the horse's mouth. So I guess the intro would be just going back a bit, you know, in, on your X Factor journey or whatever. And you've led an amazing life so far. And obviously, you know, it's early days still. And it'd be great to go through, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a hop, skip and jump through that, you know, because it's really inspiring. You didn't really start in hospitality, right? No. Um, quite a few years ago, somebody described me as an accidental restaurateur. And I've kind of, I've, I've kept that in the back of my head because I think it is quite true. Um, I, I started out of university where I, I I started actually with an ambition to get into the music business. That's how I kind of started off things. Um, but I knew that it was going to be tough. I was a songwriter and a, and, a, and a kind of producer at university, and that was great fun. We had a band, and it got quite successful. Um, but I knew that that wasn't really going to pay its way. And and I, I had my heart set. I studied law at university, and I, I wanted to go into a firm. There was a specific firm that I, 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 I studied law to go into, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a firm called Hartbottle and Lewis, and at the time they were the top music, um, entertainment, film lawyers in the country. So on the music side, they acted for in the old days they acted for everybody from the Beatles, I think, to uh, to Freddie Mercury and Queen. And in fact, actually, in the Queen in the Queen movie, one of the one of the lawyers became Queen's manager. Um, a guy called Jim Beach, and, mm-hmm. and he used to be at Harbottles, and I actually kind of knew him from those times. So it was quite quite fun. So I always wanted to go to this firm. If I wasn't going to do music full yeah. time, I'd go to this firm. But I did know I wanted to go into business, and it was a, it was a fantastic. I had a great time, a great career um, uh, at uh, Harbottles, and I was in the, the room when the Spice Girls signed their first record deal. Which Is that was, right? Which was really good fun, and and I remember going back to my girlfriend at the time, saying these four crazy lunatics were in the in the building today and they will never get anywhere they were running up and down the corridors they were making fools of themselves i remember it so well and uh, so that, that was quite fun um just, and, just going back sorry just a quick one on the queen stuff um one of my old bosses was queen's original manager who would that have been norman norman sheffield right 
So well, the, one that, the one that was in the movie mm. was this guy Jim Beach, who was yeah. a, of a legend. I think, um, I think I think it was after, but um, yeah, I, I remember it was a very acrimonious split as well, and they wrote uh, the song "Death on Two Legs" about him. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, that was in yeah, just similar circles. But I think he owned Trident Studios. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. So but I, think, recording, I Yeah, and and the Beatles did some stuff there too, I believe, and, and things like that. So yeah, back in the day. So yeah. Was, one of my one of my claims to fame is that we did some recording when I had this band at Air Studios in in Abbey Road Studios yep. um, in St John's Wood, um, and um, I played the 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 same piano that Freddie Mercury had uh, recorded Bohemian Rhapsody on. Ooh. So I was like, I was touching the same keys as Freddie. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm taking a long time to get... No, it's got. good, it's good. It's interesting. So so I had um, I had a boss, a fantastic guy called John Stutter, who was retiring. He was in his 70s, um, and, and he was very, very protective about his client base. And his client base was all of the old 1960s British icons. So he acted for people like David Frost, uh, Roger Moore, uh, Sean Connery. There was, a, there was a film director called Franco Zeffirelli, mm-hmm. like all of, the, all of the big greats. And before that, he'd acted for people like Peter Sellers. You know, it was that, rule, that, wow. age, that age. Um, and he was retiring and... I think he was in the right place at the right time because he, he really liked me. And he started passing all of these clients to, to me to look after. And I was only 25, 24, 25. And, and I, I was like the first point of call for these fantastic legends. It was really, really amazing. Oh. Um, and uh, Roger Moore became uh, a big client. He was one of my, my yeah. kind of favorite and best clients. And he used to come into the office smoking a big cigar and, and there was still, I mean, at the time you have to remember that he was still at that time, one of the most famous people in the world. Yeah. So even when he came into the building, there was kind of excitement that kind mm. of went through the corridors. People knew that knew he was there. And, and I was the one, this 24 year old kid that was looking after him. So it was fantastic fun. Um, and, uh, and I got very, I got very good friends with him and his, uh, and his family. Um, I actually went skiing with him, which was, which was, an amazing experience, and um, and I, I broke my elbow skiing with Roger Moore, oh. which was quite kind of cool. And he um, he drove me down to Geneva Hospital to have my elbow patched up. And uh, all I can tell you is that they were much more interested in him than they were in me, <laughs> and totally screwed up my elbow. Um, but yeah, so there's very good memories of that period. But then Jeffrey Roger's son was trying to start a restaurant, which was a a Planet Hollywood-styled restaurant based around his dad um, called Spy Cafe. Mm. And um, ironically, he was... Uh, I say ironically because of what's happening in the news today, um, but ironically, he was in negotiations to take um, the site that's now the Wolseley. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but he was being shafted left, right, and center, and I think they were trying to charge him £3 million rent, and he was being asked to put deposits down on replica... Um, Aston Martins that hadn't even been used in any movies because it was all the memorabilia stuff. Mm. And and he was getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this. And Roger called me up one day and said, look, we have to put an end to this. Um, you, you need to try and get Jeffrey out of all of these arrangements. So over the period of about three or four months, I worked to kind of unwind all those arrangements that he got himself into. And there was this big anticlimax at the end of that journey because Jeffrey 
had kind of lost what he'd started and was going, um, what am I going to do with, uh, with, with my life? I, I wanted to start a glamorous restaurant. So I got Jeffrey out of these arrangements and he, he said, I'm at the end of a journey. I wanted to start a restaurant and I really, I don't know where to turn now. And I said, look, rather than do a, a burger based restaurant, ironically, now that I've got hashe, <laughs> r- rather than doing a burger based restaurant, why don't you do something more glamorous that you can invite Roger, you can invite your friends, his friends, just just somewhere just really good fun. And this was at the time where um, there was a bar in London called the Met Bar, uh, where everybody used to go to. It was like the, the, right on the scene. And the original Ivy um, was kind of the beacon of celebrity magnets. And I, I said, look, you know, why don't you just build somewhere? It's a bit like the Met Bar on the first floor. And then there's a kind of brasserie like the Ivy on the ground floor. And he said, look, I'd love to, but I've got no idea where to start, how to, how do we even go about that? And I said, look, I haven't got an idea or clue where to, how to do that either. But I'll tell you what, I'll leave law and why don't we do it together? Why don't the two of us do it together? And so I left completely crazy move when you're yeah. sort of 25, 26 and you just think anything is possible. But I decided to leave law um, and uh, with no, we had no money, we had no track record, we didn't really know what we were doing. And somehow we managed to secure this 10,000 square foot building right in the middle of Mayfair, which today, if you'd have tried to do that, it'd be impossible. Um, and we, we built Hush and we, we, we built it with nothing other than customers in our minds, because that was what we wanted to build somewhere that we wanted to go. Yeah. So we had no preconceived ideas. We didn't, you know, I, I remember sitting outside a, a cafe in South Molson Street with Roger Moore and Jeffrey two weeks before we opened Hush. This became Hush. Two weeks before we opened, and we sat around and I went, right, what are we going to put on the menu? Like, two weeks. <laughs> two before, weeks. Two weeks before we opened, we we had no idea what we were doing, and it put up the noses of a lot of the critics at the time because we hadn't come from a chef's background. I didn't even know there were critics. I didn't know at that point that there were people that, whose job it was to write about restaurants. We didn't invite any of them to the opening because we didn't know that that's kind of the thing. That's, that's what, what you, you do. Um, uh, so, so we, we kind of stumbled through it. We, we had a couple of bits of luck where, um, Victoria Beckham was, um, filming a documentary about her life called Victoria's Secrets, ironically. Oh. And she called up, uh, about three or four days before we opened and said, I've got my film crew I'm doing this documentary. Would, would we be able to come to your opening and, and film it for the opening? And we were like, sure, you know, with, with pleasure. And then the next day we were on the front page, page of the Evening Standard, and I think the headline was Posh Nosh for Posh Spice, which was quite funny. <laughs> um, and, and then I, I just got a bug for it. I stayed in the restaurant business. Um, I, I have become um, a foodie through the journey. You know, I didn't start off as a foodie. I, I now would consider myself to be a foodie. I, I just I love food. I'm very up to date with it. Um, but, but yeah, it, I, I was, I was in it very accidentally. So that, that's how I stumbled into the, into the business. And then with Hush, you know, the original one in, in Mafia, you know, in terms of, you know, what it's become, was it always like that? Or, you know, you, you do such, you know, glamorous and flamboyant, you know, sort of uh, outdoor, um, you know, visual merchandising, and then inside, you know, as the pictures of the celebrities and all that, you know, as you're up the stairs and, and all that sort of stuff, was was it always that kind of way or did it evolve over time? I, I think Hush has grown uh, as as I've grown in a, in a funny way because I, I think 
the only way I think that you can build these restaurants is based around what you actually are passionate about and you, you, um, and how you, how you want people to interact in your, in your restaurants. And so every, I think every sort of three to five years, cause I've had hush 20 years now. So every three to five years, it goes through this kind of re-energizing. So if you roll back to, uh, 2000, when we opened, um, you know, I was, I was only just married. Um, I had a lot more energy. It was in my late twenties. I think, I think it was a lot more octane, um, high octane than it is now mm. in terms of the music, in terms of the lighting, it was a bit more, the whole thing was just more bling. Um, I think it's now settled down into, into a really relaxed rhythm. It feels very comfortable, it feels lived in, yeah. uh, which it is. Um, I, it's still glamorous, but it's glamorous in, in a much more sophisticated way rather than kind of in your face way. Mm. Um, we style our courtyards cause we've got one of the best outside terraces in London. We style our courtyards originally because uh, every quarter we like to give it a little bit of a scene change to tie into the seasons. And originally we did that because it's always very, very, very busy in the summer months. But when it's really cold, we, we historically never got a lot of people sitting outside. So we used to introduce these things like ski season where we tried to kind of tie into the fact that you were skiing and we would put the DJ out there and some skis and, and hot water bottles. The funny thing is since COVID, everybody's happy to sit outside. <laughs> Minus 25 degrees, they will sit outside. Yep. And I think that's it's completely changed the mindset because people – Post-COVID, we'll, we'll still be doing that, I think. Yeah. So, so we are still styling our outside courtyards um, f- for the seasons, but it, it's now because we want to do it rather because we're trying to attract a certain audience. And how many Hushies are there now? One. Just so you, you came back to one? Yeah. Uh, we, yeah, we did one in, uh, we did one in Gustav in, uh, in Switzerland, which is kind of where Jeffrey's skiing, um, skiing chalet is. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing you have to deal with, um, and uh, and we did that for about five years. It was more of a franchise, um, so, so we did that, and then we did a hush in St. Paul's, yep. uh, which we sold to Wagamama. Okay, actually. we got we we got offered. It, it, it was a restaurant in St. Paul's that was doing. I would say it was doing reasonably well. It was making a little bit of bit of money, but it wasn't really fantastic for us. And then, and then we, we got offered a significant amount of money to um, to change for for Wagamama, and mm. it, just, it was one of those things which was just too good to be true. Yeah. And with that, with that money, we bought Hashi. Yeah, yeah. Well, nice segue. So that leads does that lead you nicely into Hashi then? Yeah, Hashi. We we bought that. That's that's the only thing I've been involved in that we bought that I didn't. Uh, I wasn't the founder of it. Yeah. Um, and we bought it because. It was a really great burger, and I, I loved it. And we mm. used to go, we used to go to the Camden one a lot. Uh, and I genuinely thought, and genuinely think, that it is the, if not one of, if not the best burgers in London. There's a lot of debate about what best burger in London or best burger means, and the dirty burgers and premium burgers. And, um, but in terms of just the overall eat the overall taste is is something that i get immense pleasure about every every time i uh, eat one there's there's a burger that we do called the canadian which has got maple bacon in it and um it's just just absolutely fantastic so um and it came up for sale and 
we thought that it would be a fantastic fit for us. Um, and, uh, and we bought it and we've built a few more and hopefully we'll build a few more to come. Yeah. And then in terms of that though, it's, it's quite interesting, you know, some, someone, uh, in the burger industry uh, got in touch with me because they knew I was going to be speaking to you today. Yeah. And and they had a question really. And they were, they were saying, it's really interesting. You've stayed out of the whole burger wars, burger seat. You know, you've positioned yourself really nicely out of that. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I think we styled ourselves more as, as being almost like a burger brasserie. Mm. So, so burgers is, is, is what the core of our menu is based on, but it's not everything that we do. So we also have a flat iron steak. We do a great breakfast. We do a, a flat iron chicken um, with a conviso glaze. Um, so it, it, it's much more of a full service experience. It's much more female friendly. Yeah. Um, it's much more the sort of place where you will go and have and eat with a knife and fork and have a good glass of wine rather than it's not really a kind of milkshake in and out in half an hour type of experience. It's just a, a little bit more of a grown up experience. Um, and, and again, I suppose it shapes after what I like because it's the kind of thing that I want out of my burger. I would just like it in a really cool kind of environment with great music where I can spend time and I can have a nice drink. And, and I, I don't feel that it's, I feel that kind of fits my age and it, I, I don't have to, um, uh, I don't have to be in and out in 20 minutes and, and feel very heavy afterwards. Yeah. So those kind of burger wars are being fought amongst the same type of, but there's not much, um, that they all swim in the same pond. Uh, a, lot, a lot of the other burger ones. And I think you're absolutely right. I think we kind of sit slightly above that. Mm. I think one of the things I really enjoyed about it, because I remember when you got it at first, and I think I maybe had some time with you, but definitely with, with Lizzie, your sister, and we um, we talked about it, you know, quite a bit. And I loved the advertising ideas of it, you know, that whole kind of, you know, the female forward thing, and it was a little bit cheeky and a little bit sassy, and, you know, it was that kind of like slight, you know, French thing going on and you know and i'm sure did you not do some underground advertising because some did. of it yeah we we had a, a fantastic uh campaign maybe four or five years ago with a very attractive french looking model uh, mm -hmm. when i say french looking i mean with the breton sprite uh, stripes um with fantastic nails and makeup it, with a, eating a burger and and it was it was very much meant to say that this is a, a place which is female friendly um, and it's just all about taste and about a little bit of glamour and, and it wasn't kind of rough and rough. I mean, you, we're going through a, a period where dirty burgers and not dirty burger, the so house dirty burger, yeah. but dirty burgers generally were the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that kind of style of um, quite divey type of places was, was really fashionable and we were so different that we wanted to kind of just, let people know how different we were. Yeah. So we, we looked at that campaign. Yeah. No, it looked really good. And in terms of any secrets that you can give away in terms of putting together, you know, you're talking about it being like a great eat and things like that. Mm. I mean, what lengths did you go to, to get it right? You know? Um, cause I remember we had Zan from Bleaker Burger on. In fact, it was like one of the first, very first episodes. 
And uh, she was talking about, you know, the lengths that they went to to get the, the burger bun and all this. And I think it was like an, an, an Iranian, almost like an Iranian dinner roll that they had to get changed and re-engineer and all that. So did you take what Hashi already was doing or did you sort of develop on top of that? Well, the, the one thing that we didn't do was we, we didn't mess with the, with the constructs of the burger mm. uh, because the, the product was great. What, what we did do was we um, we refined it a bit. So we worked quite heavily on the grind and we worked quite heavily on the bun. Um, and uh, we made sure, you know, we went through a, a million iterations of the, of, the, of the bun and the grind and the composition of the, of, of the meat just to make sure that we were really, really happy with it. When we first bought it, um, there was... Um, there was a, a the, the burger almost had like a gluten, um, like a flour uh, seasoning inside the burger itself, which we stripped out completely mm-hmm. because it's just not right. Um, but we didn't mess with the overall taste. That that was fantastic. But then around the sides, um, we just wanted to make it um, work for us. So uh, the music was a bit cheesy. It was a bit what I would call uh, it was a bit radio one. It was a bit pop mm. um, and. I don't really listen to that kind of music. And, and so we, we changed the playlist to being a little bit more soul funky, just um, head nodding kind of music rather than distracting kind of music. Yeah. Um, we took the light levels down. We made sure that there were layers of lighting. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of layers of lighting. So rather than everything being on the same visual line, mm. we kind of um, built that up so that you get this feeling of warmth and comfort. Um, and retrained all the staff, made sure that all of the old school stuff that it went through, well, before we bought it, it was going through a bit of a kind of casual dining attack. Yeah. So everything was like ketchup or mayonnaise with that. Everything was very formulaic, and we stripped away all of the casual dining elements that we could find and just made them feel like independent restaurants, yeah. which they are. I mean, it's we're an independent group. We're very family-orientated Um so we just didn't want to. We didn't want to behave like a big corporate with a hundred sites because that's just not not us. Yeah, I've had a, a couple of great experiences at Camden. You know, going sort of pre gigs. You know, um, just really enjoyed it. And you, exactly what you say. It's red wine with the burger, and you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. So my my mates really enjoyed it as well. You know, they thought it was amazing. So obviously, we're going to talk about you know the new thing that you're going to be doing at the moment. You know, we're going to talk a bit more about that. Just going back though. Um, you know, there's other great things that you invented um, and, you know, were a real icon status in London, you know, amongst so many people. So, you know, Valandri and Sakino Hara and Kitchen Italia and Cabana as well. So um, is there anything, you know, just to chat about those, you know, how those came about and uh, and that type of thing? Because Valandri was such a big deal for us. We, um, I would had an agency before and it was around the corner from us and we used to be in it all the time, you know, we just thought it was wonderful. I, I loved Philandry and uh, it, it has a very special place in, in my heart because uh, I had two, uh, we had a whole series of my kids' birthday parties there um, okay. and I really associate that with um, uh, with those birthday parties. But but also Christmas, my God, Philandry at Christmas was absolutely fantastic because it was a, for those who don't know it, it was a, a food store and brasserie, but we also used to do a, a big, big, big business in Christmas hampers. And so by the time you got to November, the entire uh, restaurant was absolutely full of 
food and food products and hampers and people going in and bustle. And it was ju- it was so romantic. Yeah. The restaurant really felt kind of really romantic. Felt very New York-y um, mm. anyway. Um, uh, so, so that was a real pleasure to do. And we, I, th- I then built a very, very successful Valandry in um, Bista Village in oh, Oxford, yeah, yeah. Um, which was actually financially one of the most successful restaurants I've ever built. It was, it was incredible. Um, and, um, and then we, uh, and then we hit the financial crisis of 2008, um, and, uh, 2008, 2009. And at, at that stage, we were just about to do three new Valandries. We were going to do Canary Wharf, Covent Garden and Westfield, which mm. had just opened Westfield, London. We we're going to do three. And then when the financial crisis hit, my, uh, shareholders at the time, they said, look, you know, we cannot put any more money into into businesses at the moment because we just don't know what's going on around the corner um and and then i started peddling water with valandry for about two years and i was frustrated because i loved it but it was we had no movement mm. um so we were approached by a guy called uh, philippe larue um to in 2010 to to sell it um and we we sold it very well again it was one of those things where we were offered a, a lot of money for it and we we took it um and and I was sad in a way to uh, to see that because I, I loved it so much. But mm. with that money, we then we then built and opened um, Cabana. Yeah. So that uh, so I've kind of jumped in a sense from one one project to another. So yeah. that that's how Cabana came along. And I think you know just with the kitchen Italia as well, like and Sakinohara, you know they seemed like ahead of their time as well. You know, so you've uh, you've always been going. You know where where the puck's going. You know, um, sort of early. So. That was um, that was you know a, a, a shame on on a kitchen Italia especially you know, um, Cabana um, and how's it doing now? What's happening Cabana's with Cabana? Doing, Cabana's actually doing really well now. Uh, I and mean, we had um, in two thousand and nine, you know, uh, two thousand nine, two thousand and nineteen, before COVID, um, we we came out of the out of London restaurants for Cabana, which was which was really tough to do, and we mm. kept the London ones um, and the London ones. Um, uh, are all trading really well. We've refurbished the entire estate. Uh, so it's looking really cool. And we opened our first um, cabana in Saudi, in uh, in Great. Riyadh. And that's been really successful, so much so that they're doing uh, two more. Our partner in uh, in Saudi is doing two more, One in another one in Riyadh and one in Jeddah. Um, and then um, we're looking to see if we can explore other territories in the Middle East. So we're looking at Dubai, Oman, Kuwait. Um, so... Cabana is looking like it's got a kind of international life uh, to it, which is not something that I'd really expected, but it yeah. is, it's fantastic. And I was in um, in Saudi in November um, to to see the the operation, and it's it's amazing to see a kind of Middle Eastern interpretation of something that you've built. Yeah, it's kind of weird in a way. It's yeah. like a, another tribe has just gone. Yeah. Uh, and done not done its own thing because we've been very involved in the process, but it's been interpreted slightly differently, and it's very interesting to see. Yeah, and also it's amazing, you know, that then it's it will feel very fresh in you being a Brazilian concept and all these things. You going to open one in Brazil? You going to take coast well, to I'm, Newcastle? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we'll take take it to Brazil, but, um, <laughs> but but certainly the Middle East. I think it's I think it's great for the Middle East because it's really colourful and it's fun and it's it's great food mixed with entertainment mm. uh, and i think that they are they love those kind of concepts there yeah. i think we're also you talked about being forward thinking and actually for somewhere like saudi 
it's pretty game changing for mm-hmm. Saudi because Saudi is a country that's now opening up um, and it's taken a long time and there's a lot more work for them to do. But half of our team are women um, uh, where we play music in the restaurants, which again, three years ago, you wouldn't really be able to do that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, it's very colorful. It's next to a cinema. Again, three or four years ago, that would be unheard of. So, so for us, it's, it's seen as being quite progressive. Uh, sorry, for them, it's, seen, it's been seen as quite progressive. And, and I'm hoping that we're going to push the boundaries a bit more. I think the one that we're going to do in Jeddah, we're going to have DJs. And this, this, this kind of um, approach has, hasn't really been done in, in that area. So I'm yeah. hoping to be part of the wave. Yeah, because I remember when I was at Yosushi, um, you know, some of the franchise deals that we had out in the, the Middle East, you know, there was separate belts, you mm-hmm. know, for men and, and obviously then for children and women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, you know, it's tough, you know, when you're looking at that stuff and you're thinking, oh, come on. So, yeah, that's good. You know, it's good. Things are things are changing and, and you're at the forefront of that. It's excellent. So if we go up to today then, um, we were meant to have someone else on the podcast today, but unfortunately a bit busy. Um, but... Tell us about your business venture with not one of the Spice Girls, but one of uh, Hearsay. Hearsay, right? What's Hearsay? Hearsay, um, yeah. And as well as many other talents. Um, so, yeah, tell us about My Supper Hero and, and how you got into business with Mylene Class. It's quite incredible. So, Mylene, um, so she, she's, I don't think it's any any secret, because I think it's on Instagram, but she's in uh, in Miami at the moment, so otherwise she would have joined. She'd been delighted to <laughs> Next um, so, so I've known her for about 10 years and our, our kids are at the same school mm. uh, and, and we've, we've kind of been school gate parents, just, I don't think we've been close, close friends, but we, we have lots of chats and coffees. Um, and over lockdown, as everybody experienced, I think, um, I was completely kitchened out. I just, I just couldn't bear another kitchen experience, not just of the cooking, because I was doing all the cooking in the family, but but also the the thinking about what to cook and then the buying of the ingredients and then the cooking and then the clearing up and then the preparing of the of the food, the chopping and the peeling. And I just I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do it again. And I tried lots of of recipe boxes where they send you basically raw ingredients in a card to say how you put it together like HelloFresh. And uh, and gusto, and I there are people that love that, and 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 I understand why, because it solves a problem, which is the fact that you don't have to think about what to make, mm. and you've got the ingredients there. But I found them really basic, and and I felt that I could probably cook better myself. Um, and there was still a lot of prep that you had to do. I was still, I was still facing raw onions and uh, and and carrots and just you know everything from scratch. Yeah. And then I tried the kind of high-end recipe boxes, um, and I found that the um, finish-at-home kits from the from the. I even had a Heston Blumenthal one. Wow! It was it was like it was unbelievably expensive, and it took forever to put together. Um, and and I just thought I just want to eat really well in my own home, in a really short amount of time Mm -hmm. so that I can go and do other things, watch Netflix, um, you know, talk to my friends. I just, I wanted to eat well, but I just didn't want the entire journey that, that makes that up. I wanted to do it really quickly. Um, and I was having this conversation with Miley and Miley was saying that she was having exactly the same experience in her household, but she's a lousy cook. She hates cooking. 
Okay. Just to admit it, but she was having she was coming at from a different angle, which is that she was saying she was saying she also wanted to eat really really well, but she had no access to the ability to cook really well, mm. and uh, I think she was delivered out as we all were. I mean, I, I I just couldn't handle another whatever you do with delivery with delivery still feels junky to a certain mm. degree. You're right. Um, you're, just on that point, Jamie, right? I've, I've been telling people you're coming on the podcast, right? And I was explaining what my superhero was, and it's exactly what I said. It was, you've hit this sweet spot, which is, you know, between recipe boxes, between cooking for yourself, between delivery, and even if you get itsu or a full salad or... It, you know, I'm not saying it's junk, but it, it just feels still that you're having a fast food takeaway as such, you know, um, as, as good as you're trying to be. So, yeah, it felt like there was another level somewhere that was, you know, deeper in nutrients maybe and, and things like that, you know. I, I agree. Um, and, and, and I was surprised that it was so difficult to find that sweet spot um, because... And I'll tell you what it is. It's interesting because what, what I didn't want to do was to create is to try and copy a restaurant experience at home. I didn't want to do that because I own restaurants. I'm happy for people to go to restaurants. They should go, please. Please go to restaurants. <laughs> um, and so I wasn't trying to copy that experience because I also think that at home, people don't want to eat in the way that they eat in a restaurant. So if I came home and, I mean, I do all the cooking, but you know, if my wife or my partner was to say, for starters, tonight you're going to have the Gravelax, followed by the Adco the hell are you talking about? That's not how people <laughs> eat at home. So, so people eat. Um, uh, the, what I do think happens is that if you have a really good chef, a really, really great chef, like some of the chefs that I work with, when they go home and they cook for their families, that's what I'm trying to provide people access to. Yep. So one of my uh, chef, our executive chef at Harsh um, uh, called Tom Anglesey, is a brilliant chef, absolutely brilliant chef. If he goes home to his family he might source a fantastic piece of lamb and he may marinate it or smoke it for 24 hours and, and then he'll have some fantastic flatbreads and rip a piece of the flatbread off and grab a piece of the lamb and then maybe dip it in some tzatziki when, and, and it's all been hung properly and just like just that kind of eating experience is what I am trying to provide people the ability to try at home. Yeah. Um, and if we can do that for people with less than 10 minutes of effort, then I think that we've succeeded. But it's not a restaurant meal, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So and I think the hardest part for me is trying to explain to people what it is that we're trying to do, actually. Yeah. No, I, I, I thought, I mean, it, it felt fairly obvious, but I guess I'm in the industry and all that, but it felt fairly obviously where it, where it was going to be. So in terms of uh, the food development and all that kind of thing, you know, how did that all come about and you know how did you settle on you know the right dishes or the the right roster of dishes you know as, as you go through the year to keep it fresh as well how does that all work um well there's you know tom is still very helpful uh, for me because he's he's gives me ideas and inspiration um which which is great and uh, then i've got a head chef who is a fantastic guy called charlie bronson who is uh, an ex uh, D chef mm. um I, th I think one of the interesting things you you I think at some point you you when we spoke on the phone you wanted to talk about hospitality and the challenges of recruitment. Yeah. Uh, and one of the interesting things for me is that I've been able to attract really fantastic talent for my superhero because um, we're providing them the ability to work in a 
Monday to Friday normal hours kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and and actually we are we're able to attract a lot of talent to work in that kind of way because post COVID, I think people have just come out of the habit or just not wanted to work 70, 80 hours in a very uh, difficult environment, high pressure environment in, in restaurants. Um, and work-life balance has become a very, very hot topic and, and a, probably an overdue topic uh, of conversation. Um, and that's something that we're kind of obsessed with trying to improve. I wouldn't even say fix, but trying to improve in the restaurants, trying to work out what's the best way of being able to deal with work-life balance. But on Supper Hero, we've managed to get a high caliber of chefs um, that, that help put all of our recipes together with my input and with Mylene's input, actually. Um, so it's been quite an enjoyable journey. So in terms of building out the menu and things like that, um, is, does the roster change like every month? Does it change weekly? You know, how, how does all that kind of happen as well, you know, to, to sort of keep that fresh? And also, how many chefs have you got working on it now? So we've got we've only got four chefs working mm-hmm. uh, on, on the project, and we do we do batches of menu development. So we'll do sort of fifteen dishes all at once, mm-hmm. um, and work on those dishes, um, and then sort of two or three months later, and we've been going for eight weeks. So it's really new in yeah, this process. Tomorrow, for example, I'm trying out another eight dishes, um, and to be honest, I go back to where I started from at Hush, which is. I'm trying to build something that I like because mm-hmm. I kind of figure out that if there are more, that if I like it, there's got to be more people like me out there. I, I think my, my tastes hopefully are quite um, broad, um, but at the same time quite accessible. Mm-hmm. So I kind of figure if I like stuff, other people will like it. So I really, I really, I really wanted to do uh, a bow dish because I just love eating bow, yeah. um, and we've got a fantastic bow. Um, we've got a, a, a beautiful side of salmon, which has got a marinade of, uh, of miso, sticky miso on the top and, and honey. And then you can flake pieces of the miso salmon off and stuff it in the bow and then top it with a peanut dressing and some pickled onions on the top and just eat it. Yeah, I, a, I saw it was peanut dressing. I was like, whoa, I've never thought of doing that, you know, with the salmon. Yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant dish. It's a great dish. Um, so, so it's kind of stuff I like to eat. Yeah. It sounds good. So in terms of price point as well, what are people in for when they when they want to get, you know, maybe for a, a couple or a family of four or how would that work? So the, it, price-wise, it ranges from about £12.50 a head to £15 a head. So we've priced it at, we've priced it as an alternative to um, to a delivery, I suppose, because I've had Wagamama deliveries that are more expensive than that. Um, it is more expensive than HelloFresh or Gusto. Um, and in fact, actually, it's funny because I had a I had a comment that came through on Facebook today this morning that said um, I've had a look at your I've had a look at your site. Uh, I quite like HelloFresh, but I'm I find it expensive. Have you got anything cheaper? Um, and I was thinking, well, you know, HelloFresh is cheap. Uh, I mean, I think their meals can start from about five pounds per person per, per portion. And I was thinking, you know, one of our dishes is a is a, a whole spatchcock free range chicken from a farm in Surrey, um, in Suffolk, which has been marinated in a piri piri butter, and um, and it comes with a roasted black garlic aioli, heritage tomatoes, chopped heritage tomatoes with a cabernet sauvignon dressing, um, and uh, an organic salad which has been harvested that morning uh, from a hydroponic. 
And I'm, the truth is, you can't do that for a fiver. No. <laughs> you can't do it for a fiver. As much as I'd love to do it, you can't do it for a fiver. So, so we've priced it, I think, at a very premium, affordable level. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. And then just in terms of the customer journey then, so you go to mysupperhero.com, which is a great name, and we'll talk about that in a sec, and then you go on, and then it's like a delivery-style selection of things that you can have. Yeah. And then you you click it, get in your basket, and it's nationwide, right? Or is it? No, it's nationwide, yeah. and uh, we deliver on a Wednesday and a Friday, and everything keeps for three days, so it covers the whole week. Yeah. Um, and in London... It's where all the deliveries are emissions free, so they all go out on a on a electric fleet, emissions free. Outside of London, at the moment, we're using DHL, but um, but we're hoping to find a, um, an emissions free alternative. Um, all the packaging, all the it, it, all, everything that we use is plant based or uh, or plastic free pa- packaging, wow. um, and and it's a it's a nice tight little operation. I think at some point we'd like people to order, order regularly once every week, once every two weeks. But the, at the moment, the uh, the great stat that I've got is that when people try it, they love it. And 50% of people are reordering within two weeks of okay. their first order. So that that's really encouraging. Yeah, no, you'll take that for sure. Um, just going back then, I mean, we'll talk about the marketing as well, because I think you've done such a great job in that, in real, you know, sort of street fighting stuff. But the name, mm-hmm. where did the name come from then? So the original name, so during lockdown, before My Superhero, I was looking at doing a, a drive-through operation. Um, I was looking at doing a drive-through with lots of different hubs mm. in, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the same drive-through, um, of which one of them was going to be this kind of finish-at-home meal kit business. And the original name for that hub drive-through was Hubby. So I was okay. going to call it Hubby, which I thought was a great name. <laughs> so when I decided not to do that, but just to focus on the Finish at Home kit, um, I spoke to Marlene about it, and she said, we're not calling it Hubby. I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not calling it Hubby. So we, we had to try and think of another name that we could use. And, uh, and I think I had Supper Love I had at one point. Um, and, then, and then that kind of morphed into My Supper Hero. My, ironically, is the first two names of Marlene's name, and Hero is actually the name of her daughter. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, a hero with an E. With an O, H E R O, yeah. Oh, right, because I've got a mate, he's H I R O. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's just called his kid that, yeah. Wow. That's a Japanese name, I think, is it? Yeah, right. I think he took it from a Blur song, actually. Um, yeah, Hero and something is a Blur song, yeah. Um, big, big Blur fan. Right, okay. Well, I mean, that, and in terms of the URL being free and the social media handles and. You, you found no issues with that, or did you have to buy it off someone? No, they were they were all free, um, which was interesting. I think you, you say it was a brilliant name. The one thing, again, you find post-launch is that whenever you search My Superhero, the first thing that comes up is, did you mean My Superhero? Yeah. Um, and so that's slightly annoying, and, and I think that just, we need some maturity in the, in the click-throughs before it ranks above mm. my superhero but the first thing that it shows is my superhero yeah. and it's only slowly starting to change over but um but i think it's quite a fun name kind of says yeah. what it does in yeah and i think the audience will be savvy enough that you might end up getting more direct searches anyway yeah. um yeah. and then if it's 
Yeah, hopefully they'll just be going straight for because you do talk about mysubhero.com a lot, which then will get it get it into their minds. My so, um, uh, my interesting take on it is that we, we had a little coffee to try and work out who was the hero in the early stages. Like, who is the is 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 the hero us? Are we the he- the superhero because we're providing you with the solution? Hmm. Or are you at home the superhero because you're the one that's making the meal? And I was having this conversation with, um, do you know Marcel Kahn? Yeah. 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 So Marcel and I, Marcel obviously a fantastic operator. Yeah. He was Five Guys and um, Thunderbird and now Miss Guzzi. Um So he said, no, 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 no. The, the, the kit is the, is the hero. Mm. I said, oh, of course. So he said, yeah, you know, it's your chicken hero. It's your lamb hero. It's your cauliflower hero. It's the, that's, that's yeah, it's the yeah. box that's the hero. And I was like, that. That's really that makes smart. Sense. It hasn't even. It, it makes so much sense, but it's not something that even occurred to me when we were originally yeah. thinking about. I it. can imagine him saying it as well, just in his real sort of sparky way. Um, but yeah, he's been on the podcast before. He was absolutely phenomenal, um, as you can imagine. Lots of uh, Bruce Springsteen talk and music talk and all that kind of jazz. Oh, he loves it. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so then, in terms of marketing, then so this is a startup and. You know, you're not going to have wads of cash to chuck into, you know, TV advertising and all that yet. So, what was the plan? What What did you do? How did How did you go about getting some eyeballs on it and some, uh, yeah, some some amplification? Um. Well, I was very naive. Is all I have to say uh, is that I kind of assumed that uh, Mylene would do one tweet, and then suddenly the whole business would ignite. Right. Um, and, uh, and she did a tweet and certainly there was a lot of flow through to the, to the website, but in the early stages, there wasn't the conversion that I was expecting. I was just expecting it all naturally. I, I, you know, there's me, I don't know about this stuff. I'm kind of expecting, what do you mean? That's the click rate. I'm expecting like 96% of people to click through an order that same. Um, and it didn't, it didn't happen. Um, so, um, we've decided to, I think, take two approaches. One is that we need the brand to become, um, better known in people's heads that there is a thing which you will know. I've been told, um, that it takes people five or six times to be exposed to a brand before you can convert them towards purchase. Yes. I mean, it's usually even going up, creeping up to eight. You know, it's uh, it's high. You know, yeah, yeah. You need to nudge them a few times for sure. So, so one was in terms of brand recognition. The brand recognition we've done quite a lot of work on Instagram um, with with Mylene and outside of Mylene with uh, with influencers, um, where we're just we're just giving them the box. We're not paying for influencers, but we're just giving them the box, saying if you like it, post. If you don't like it, don't don't post. Yeah. Uh, but they are loving it, which is great to see. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so our Instagram numbers are starting to build. Um, so I think when you first start out and you've got an Instagram account, which has got four followers because it's in your first week, people that are seeing that externally don't have any trust in the brand. But when the, when the numbers start to build thousand, 2000, hopefully five, 10,000, then yeah. people start to get a trust that they can't be the only one that's looking at this. Yeah. Uh, so we've got that brand awareness piece, um, which doesn't necessarily translate into sales, but is really important. Um, coming on, on your podcast is, is part of the, the, the brand awareness piece um, and doing interviews is part of that, talking about what we're doing. Um, 
I, I still think that we, we've got more to, to do to explain what it is that we're doing. Um, to understand, as you, you rightly said, that sweet spot, where we sit in, in the whole meal ecosystem. I think we've got a lot of work to do to explain that, and that's why doing these face-to-face is really important. Yeah. But then on the other side, I think we're going back to grassroots stuff, which is trying to find adopters, early adopters that really like it, and will spread the word to their friends and family. And so we both live in North London, and we, we've decided to try and uh, build out some density in North London yeah. through local Facebook groups, through schools, through uh, mums' networks, to just let people experience this solution to to time for time for time poor foodies that yeah. that's what if you if you're a foodie you love food you love eating you haven't got a lot of time you can't eat out every week this is a solution for you and if we build it out locally then hopefully there will be more areas like that for us to expand to um and and that's kind of the approach we've taken well it's really interesting because i think you of doing more than you're giving yourself credit for. You know, I think you're doing the hard yards. And actually what's so pleasing is you're doing the stuff that I talk to people about again, 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 again. And I say, look, you need to go into every single person that follows you on Instagram or every single person you know on LinkedIn, every single person you have an email, one-to-one. And, you know, and it was a personal email you were giving me. And I've got to credit you with this. You're the reason why I'd started series three of this. I wasn't going to bother. And then when you, and I was, I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to have some more time off. And then when you wrote, I was like, yeah, it'd be kind of nice to do it again, you know? So thank you for that. Um, you know, I absolutely got to credit the, the next series to you because I was being a bit lazy. Um, <laughs> I think it's great. I love your podcast. I didn't know that you weren't thinking of it. Yeah. Thing. I was a bit like, yeah, you know, have I got anything else to say or whatever? But, um, but yeah, so it's great. You know, and I was also worried that people were, you know, interviewing the same people, you know, all the time. And, and what's nice is you're, you're not kind of on that, you know, treadmill circuit, something different. But yeah, so so I would say um, you're doing the hard yards, one-to-one messaging, you know, absolute bayonet stabbing, you know, rather than, you know, sort of big um, stealth missiles or, you know, scattergun rubbish. So I, th- I thought it was absolutely fabulous. And then actually something you might want to look at is, and I, I'll send it to you after the show, is um, uh, TikTok, you know, uh, we've just had some great success with TikTok um, in terms of content creators and, and advertising and, you know, and it doesn't need to cost the earth. Um, so, yeah, I think, you you know, such a huge food community there um, and it's not all youngins, you know, so, you'd have, I'm a you know. Big, I'm a big fan of TikTok and I think, I think it's particularly strong on food mm. uh, and I think you're right. I think it's getting older. I think the whole, the whole oh, yeah. age range is getting older and um, there's a bit of a battle between Reels and TikTok at the moment and yeah. people to favor one platform over the other, yeah. but I, I would love to do more TikTok uh, yeah. content. At the moment, I'm just learning. I, I've got this, I, I've never done a digital business before, um, and I've never done an e commerce business. And so I am learning all of this stuff. I'm sucking it all in as, yeah. as much as I can, and it is challenging and difficult. I, I am reading, so I'm, I'm reading this book called Traffic Secrets at the moment. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm quite enjoying, which talks about funnels, which I, is yes. not an expression that I'd even heard of before. Yeah. It has these little exercises that you can do where it says, write 12, write down 12 expressions that your users are using in their lives today. Okay. Just tw- and, and, and you have to write 12 because by the time you get to sort of five or six, you think it's quite easy. And then actually trying to get down to the 12 is quite hard. Yeah. 
So for us, it would be things like, I just can't cook anymore. I hate cooking. I hate cooking. Yeah. So then it says, okay, well, enter I hate cooking into Google and see where are the people talking about the fact that they hate cooking. Find out where they're congregating. Yeah. And then go and listen into those conversations and then offer your solutions. And it was just, a, you know, it, for me, op- operating restaurants, it's, that's not something I've ever thought of doing before. It's not. We open restaurants. We do a launch party. We do some press and gre- get the critics in. But, but nobody talks about what your funnels are for a restaurant. So for me, it's just... Yeah just interesting experience yeah i mean uh, well what will blow your mind and cheese you off is you've just learned about funnels and there's so many people now saying funnels are dead you always get that you know is that people are saying you know the four p's are dead and it's like well no they still work pretty well um yeah. so yeah you know fun, funneling and scorecards and dashboards and channel attribution and yeah there's there's a lot of stuff in it i mean i was lucky i grew up at lastminute.com so um, you know, I was quite lucky that I kind of learned that stuff early and then forgot it once I got into restaurants. I mean, I think also in terms of, you know, competitors for you and, you know, an enemy to push against, it's probably that, you know, the, the Marks and Spencers dine in for £10 and, you know, there's su- you know what you're doing, such a category killer there, you know, fresher, better, you know, all the rest of it. So, you know, I, I think there's, uh, you know, forgetting Deliveroo and all that, you know, you actually could take huge market share from, from those lot, you know, which I think is really interesting. Well, I think that I, I read quite an interesting report, which was called Share of Stomach. Um, oh, wow. And and what it was saying was, it was quite obvious, really. It was saying that everybody eats at least 14 meals a day, excluding breakfast, uh, 14 meals a week. Uh-huh. Everybody eats 14 meals a week. And there is a massive battle going on for control or command of one of those 14 slots. And in the old days, it might be restaurants fighting, them, uh, fighting amongst themselves and supermarkets fighting amongst themselves. But now you've got supermarkets, Deliveroo, restaurants, Uber Eats, uh, HelloFresh. Everybody is in the same battle where they're all trying to get one of your slots. And, uh, and I find that quite interesting because when people talk about what, what are your competitors, it's not, it's not necessary within category. It's not mm. just my competitor is... HelloFresh is a as a yeah. bad example, but uh, but it is also it's also deliverer going out to eat, cooking at home. It's the whole cycle of eating is, yeah. is my competitor set. Yeah. But it also means that it's a huge market. I always enjoyed Robert Bean's um, definition of competitor, which was um, anyone that can steal a pound, euro, or dollar from you. You know, I always thought that was such a good one because when, for example, maybe you were doing the brand DNA work at Yosushi or whatever it was you were actually saying, well, someone could bring in a packed lunch. Mm. You know, someone could go to Boots and get a meal deal, whereas in your head you're going, well, it's your Wagamama 4, blah, blah, blah. You know, so um, it it really widens your horizons for sure, definitely. So in terms of um, the the sort of marketing going forward and, you know, budgeting for it and, and how much social you're doing, have you got any thoughts on that at the moment or is it just, you know, quite still quite in its infancy where you're sort of seeing what you're going to be doing over the next sort of month by month? Is it sort of 30-day planning and no more right now? Yeah, I think to a certain degree we're in that stage where we're trying to understand who our audience really is and where they are. Mm. So um, at the moment we're trying to understand is this the right kind of product for young urban professionals in the centre of London mm-hmm. or is it, over 50s in regional locations in uh, 
you know, in uh, in the north of England, um, and and actually, um, or is it both, or is it is it all of that? Um, and 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 so what we're doing at the moment is really really gently experimenting with little bits of uh, of marketing, a little bit of Instagram ads, a little bit of Facebook work, um, just to kind of test. Um, where where we've got the strongest resonance with, uh, with with people. Obviously, at the moment, we're doing most of our work locally, um, but we are getting orders in from Newcastle, and we've had we've had several repeat orders from uh, from from the same guy up in Scotland, ordering ordering sort of five six meals at a time every every week. Okay. Um, and so, actually, I'm the one that's I'm straight on WhatsApp with him, going really interested to know how did you find out about it. Tell me about the journey. What what do you experience? So so I I don't think that we're ready to deploy proper money um, into into a kind of blitz campaign on anything until we've really really nailed down who it is that we're targeting and who our audience is. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right approach or the wrong approach, but that's that's what it occurs to me. No, I mean, well, you can go either way, can't you? You can say who you want your audience to be and then you work with them to find out you're doing the right thing or you launch the thing and then retrofit who's buying it and then you go big on them. And I guess you're just trying to figure out, is that audience big enough? You know, this this sort of archetypes that are buying it from you, you know? Is it one audience? Is it three? Is it, you know, all the rest of it? So, yeah. It could, well, this is, this is the pilot. It's um, this at this stage. It's a pilot. Um, it's a beta test, and the point about that is that you make mistakes and and you work out who your tribes are and what works and what doesn't work. And uh, I think most I've done so many startups. I've done. I worked out the other day. I think I've done. If you, if you count each restaurant as being a, a or each brand as being a startup, I must have done twenty eight startups. Is it? Wow. Um, and and so and. And all the preconceptions that you that you start with turn out usually to be wrong when you're three or four months in the journey, uh, and so you've constantly got to learn and adapt. And 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 I think we're doing that with Supper Hero. You start with an idea as to who's going to use it, um, and then um, and then you just got to learn the hard way that people are using things in different ways. Yeah. No, definitely. Well, I know I'm taking up loads of your time here, so there was a couple of final things I was just wanting to ask you if that was okay. So I was just going to skip through. Um, you mentioned about the people stuff earlier on, so I'm leading a project called Hospitality Rising, and we're trying to raise five million pounds to basically do Army Be the Best ad campaign, but for hospitality. Um, so just with that in mind, um, I was just wondering and on the people problem side of things then, so, you know, just in terms of your thoughts on why there is a shortage in hospitality. I mean, you touched on some of the work-life balance and, you know, but maybe something about the perceptions and, and things like that. You know, what are you hearing? Um, and why, you know, why does hospitality seem to have this poor reputation? You know, what do you think is going on there? Um, well, I think that uh, there's obviously been, I, I think COVID was, was a, a pivotal time for the restaurant sector um uh, mostly because it was put it put a grenade in the whole of the uh, uh of, of people's normal pattern of behavior um and a lot of people went back to to their countries of origin um or they decided to leave the sector completely um of course if if people did return to their bases in in europe they found that post brexit wasn't as easy to come back into the country as they were expecting so look we've lost a lot of people that way through through migration 
Um, and uh, a lot of people have found other ways to be able to achieve their work-life balance and don't want to come back into a difficult sector with stress. Um, so we've lost people to, we, we've lost managers to Bitcoin. Who They've decided to go and trade Bitcoin. I don't yeah. know. I don't know quite how they fared over the last uh, three or four weeks. Yep. As one is crashed. Down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely crashed. Um, but we've some people have become Uber drivers. Some people have retrained completely and gone into into other forms of uh, of technology. And I think that's a great shame because I think hospitality can be unbelievably rewarding. Uh, I think it can be incredibly social. I think it can be. I think it can form a very strong family network for a lot of people. There is a huge support group around teams in restaurants um, and a real sense of camaraderie and and protection. Um, and for a lot of people, it's their first jobs. But there are massive opportunities in, in restaurants that, that are not highlighted. Um, I always talk about, we, we had a manager at Hush. He was a, he came in as a barman mm-hmm. and um, he progressed to being a bar manager and then he became the general manager of Hush quite a while ago. Um, and he was so good that I promoted him. He became an ops director. And three or four years later, he was, uh, he was poached by a, uh, uh, an international group. And he now runs a major, a major um, a Hong Kong-based uh, group of restaurants and um, is on an absolute fortune. And this is a guy who has worked his way all the way through from being a guy behind the bar yeah. to being a very, very senior position. And, and those kind of opportunities need to be presented to people. They, they need to know that there is a path rather than just being a waiter, that, that if you do work really hard and you, and you play the game uh, properly in terms of look for those opportunities and move with them, um, you can rise really, really well in this sector and mm. be paid very well for it. Yeah. I did, you know, apart from that, which is a great reason, is there any other things you think that we could do as an industry to help the perception and, you know, and and the experience of working in hospitality? I think work-life balance is is so important. I think people need to understand that 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 is a big focus for restaurateurs at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think we as a sector can always do more. I, I think we're guilty of not doing enough of it, but I, I, I think highlighting the experience of individual people within our teams and profiling those people is, is a very positive thing to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think that it's usually just the guys at the top that get the, the torch shone at them. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think we, as an organization, my restaurant group, I think we could do more to kind of handpick individuals that have got fantastic stories and tell those stories to people i think i think people want to hear them yeah no definitely cool what do you- uh well raising five million pounds to do an ad campaign about it would be, <laughs> be good um yeah i mean i think some of the the, the chats i've been having it's been really interesting cause i've been exposed to so many people i just would never have met you know through, through doing this you know um and i think some of the things really are i'd like to see you know, it being stacked up against other entry-level jobs. Mm. So actually, you know, one of the things we're, we're trying to do with this Hospitality Rising is displace any other option for someone that's under 30 who's going into an entry-level job because hospitality stacks up really well. You know, when you take the hours, money, 
but the tips and the friendship economy stuff and the flexibility that it has, you know, you don't, it's a rebellion against the nine to five. Um, you know, it's, it's a very different way to go. Um, I think it can go alongside your side hustle of being a Bitcoin dabbler, you know, and things like that. So, um, also one of the great things I heard, I think it was maybe Kate Nichols that said was, um, it makes you a better whatever. So if you had, what I'm not saying you weren't a good lawyer or a nice lawyer, but if you had worked in hospitality loads previous to that, you know, it maybe would make your people skills like even better or yeah. it would make you a better doctor or it would make you a better whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I really liked that as well. And then a phrase that came out, which I loved, um, it was Alison at um, Buzzworks talked about, was hospitalities for a reason, a season or a lifetime. So, yeah. you know, there's different ways to play it, you know, um, in terms of there's a need right now, um, it is just the summer season, whatever, or, or there is that career stuff that you're talking about. Um, my, but, it's funny, after 20 years, my daughter, who's 17, um, she she's started working um, uh, as, a, as a hostess or host in a reception uh, at Hush um, uh, in her school breaks, school holidays. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a fantastic experience because, first of all, I think she underestimated how physically demanding it is. Yeah. It's a really, really hard work. But she has really enjoyed the whole interaction piece, the whole interaction with her colleagues, the whole interaction with, with guests. Um, and it is one of those sectors, I think, where the more you put in, the more you, you get out. Yeah. Because I think that if you do let your personality shine, um, it you get it rewarded back in spades, and you know that as a customer because when you get great service, it it makes your whole evening. You yeah. you love it, and and you you feed your energy back to them, and 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 it's a kind of two way street. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's great for people to be exposed, you know, to to this kind of work. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be huge, and then I think also you know big diversity and inclusion play as well, and also you know, getting the ear of parents and key people of influence, you know, that'll say, you know, friends of your mum would go, oh, there's a wee job going there or whatever, you know, more than they would have done, you know, they'd rather you maybe worked in retail or rather you went to an office job or, you know, we're going to try and, you know, sort of combat that. So no, it's it's, it's good, but I'm I'm interested to hear what others think as well, because at the end of the day, I'm a marketing guy and I don't really know, <laughs> you know, you, you know better than me. Um, so that's why we're, we're, we're taking that advice from people. So last couple of questions then, we just do a wee fun bit at the end, um, which is uh, called Mark Out of 10. So we talk about, uh, you know, some fun stuff in terms of what is your best city to eat in? Um, best city to eat in. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say London because that's boring. I, I actually think, um, although London is an amazing city to eat in, um, for me, I'm going to go with uh, there are two. I think Tel Aviv is one. Uh -huh. I think is I think the food in Tel Aviv is unbelievable out of this world. Um, and Barcelona, um, I, I just always eat well in Barcelona. Um, but but I think if, if I, I on balance, I, I'm going to go with Tel Aviv. Nice, that's a good answer. We're not had that yet. And then best restaurant. What's your number one restaurant that you love? So sticking with that, there is a there is a restaurant in Tel Aviv called Abraxas, um, and I, I'm not sure if it's a, a chicken and an egg question. I'm not sure if if. Ottolenghi was inspired by Abraxas or Abraxas was inspired by Ottolenghi, but, but it certainly has those kind of flavors and those kind of experiences there. And it's all fantastic, fresh. It's great, great fun. Nice. And best dish meal. What's your 
favourite thing best, to have? So, so I'm going to go for best dish. So my best dish is a prawn and bean curd chung fun from Yawacha. Okay. Which, which is like, it's the most incredible dish ever. It's fantastic. I'm going to have that next time I go. I've, I've not noticed that before. I need to have a look at that. Well, and we do that in Soho. Yeah, they do that in Soho. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great. Mm-hmm. And uh, alcoholic drink, you're, you're drinking still? You drink alcohol? Yeah, 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 yeah. So my, my drink, I had to think about this, but my drink is slightly associated with a kind of place in that I, I like a, I like an old-fashioned, mm-hmm. um, and an old-fashioned when it's cold is, it, I've got quite a strong memory of that. So so we go to, we tend to go to Soho Farmhouse in January. Lovely. Um, and there's a big open fire pit there, and, and I always have this memory of drinking old-fashions outside in a fire pit area that's um that, that's kind of what i go for lovely um well there's a soho house allegedly opening in brighton at some point so i can't wait for it to happen they told me november but yeah they didn't say which year i suppose um and then who are you taking with you then um on this lovely meal that you're having that that was a tough one um who am i taking with me so so i actually thought so I thought about this and I thought I, I'd actually love to have lunch or dinner with Steve Jobs just because I think it would be an absolutely fascinating, fascinating experience because I just love to understand the way his mind works um, or worked. Having said that, I think that he was, I don't think he ate. Um, I think he was a very, very, very picky. I think he was, uh, he was vegan, but I think he was a very, very picky vegan at right. that so I don't think it would have been the most fun lunch experience. <laughs> so if I was going purely for laughs, I'd go, I'd go for somebody like Ricky Gervais. I think that would be quite funny. Oh, wow. I think, I, think I, just, I just have quite a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. That would be, that'd be incredible. Um, and then what about this year? What's it going to hold for you in the business and hospitality in general? What do you think? Um, I think... So I, I'm, I'm actually feeling fairly optimistic, um, which which is a change because obviously 2020 was 2019, 2020 was very, very tough years, but I'm feeling optimistic. I think superhero, I'd love that to start taking shape and for that to be the leading um, solution for people in that premium affordable meal kit space. So, so that's where I'd like to go with superhero. And uh, for our group of restaurants, the hush group, um, I would like to look at more opportunities to find small brands that we can help and incubate. Maybe they've got one or two units. Maybe they're undercapitalized, but they think they can do fantastic things and find a way of being able to bring them under our wing and, and see if we can help them grow. And I think that's really the kind of skill set that, that appeals to me. It's something that I could really get my, my, uh, my teeth stuck into. So, so yeah, I'm feeling, feeling pretty good. Nice. All right. Well, listen, I'll love you and leave you then. This has been an amazing chat and I wish you and Mylene and the team you know, so much luck. Um, you deserve it. I think you've done something amazing here and obviously the rest of the businesses too. And yeah, we'll hopefully catch up very soon. I'm off to get my dinner sorted <laughs> on mysuperhero.com. <laughs> Thank you so much. Nice to see you, Jamie. Take care. Thanks so much.
What a fabulous episode and thanks so much to Jamie for giving up the time to chat to me today. As I say, I've got to thank him for getting in touch with me and saying, are you still doing your podcast? So it was really down to him that we've started Series 3. So thanks so much, Jamie. A huge thanks to you for listening. Thank you so much. And thanks again for everyone who gets in touch every single week. And thanks also to the people that are telling one more person about the podcast every week, every month, every year. Huge thanks to Gaz and Gabby for all that they do to put the show together. I really appreciate it. And thanks for making it sound so good. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you. And thanks for listening. I really hope that this episode with the Accidental Restaurateur has given you some great insight, some great value, some great information, tricks and tips and confidence to really help your brand boom. <laughs>